The scripture passage this morning will be in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25 and going to verse 42. You can find that on page 1581 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Amen. Thanks, Becca. So I'm back from the desert. That's not a metaphor. Our family reunion was in southwestern Utah, which is apparently the second driest state in the nation, and it was like clockwork 105 every day with my in-laws. <laughs> so there. Um... Uh, I want to say a couple things, because when I got home, I listened to the three sermons you heard while I wasn't here, and I was really impressed. One, because no church of substance can become a church of substance listening to show ponies and never hearing from workhorses. And though I try to be a workhorse show pony, um, both funny and substantive, sometimes you just got to hear from people who've been married 50 years and followed Jesus that whole time, and who don't say it all funny and flowery, like— if they say it a little awkward, it's good, right? You just, I mean, I don't know about you, but if I have a chance to hear from somebody on an important subject, 
one person who's studied that subject and one person who has accomplished the subject, I would rather hear from the second virtually all the time. And so, um, I w- and here's what I want you to remember from that, because you only can use what you remember and master. How many times when Bill and Diane were talking about their life, did they say they were in some kind of trial, some kind of difficulty, and in the discipline of Bible reading and prayer, were renewed, found their way, were encouraged, got a divine rebuke that was necessary, or so on. A lot of people behave as though they believe that the practice of reading God's written word with an open heart and mind to grow in devotion to Christ and to pray, to speak to God, and to, to, to engage in the actual spiritual act of prayer are some, somehow like not effective spiritual disciplines. They aren't effective spiritual disciplines who, for people who want to maintain their self-righteousness and not really open themselves for God's reconstruction. If you imagine spirituality in a way that allows you to stay the way you are, then you're right. They're terrible spiritual disciplines, and they will not get you anything like that makes you feel good. But if you want to grow in the likeness of Christ and experience salvation, they're awesome. The second, two weeks ago, Lloyd talked um, about a number of things, but one of the things I thought he did a really good job talking about was this, this guy in the Bible who is casting out demons in Jesus' name, but isn't even following with Jesus' disciples. You know, it leads you to think, how on top of things can he possibly be, right? And then you need to realize that you think you're on top of things, but that guy could cast out demons, okay? And there's a certain deal where you got to be like, look, we could— because, listen, High Point Church is a non-denominational church, right? And it's a non-denominational church with a bunch of pride traps because God has been—has blessed us, right? Like, we're a church that— numerically, we've grown over the last eight years every single year. We voted unanimously on our last budget. We're baptizing 40 people at least a year. Like, you know, in all meaningful sense, we're stable. Things, good things are happening in our ministries. There's more kids. Like, it seems like we're doing things right, and it's really easy to get self-righteous about that kind of thing, right? We're doing right. Those other churches are struggling. You know, they, they should act more like us, you know? And that's really dumb. Um, and as a non-denominational church, there's no preset group of people or churches that we partner with. And so we partner with independent African-American churches, worldwide Pentecostal churches, both of the Latino churches that we hear, charismatic churches. Um, I mean, like, we have a real hodgepodge of, um, of, of ways in which we partner with all kinds of different churches, ethnically and in terms of how they even understand spirituality, but they all trust the scriptures, they all believe in Jesus, they believe in personal salvation, and they believe in reaching out. They believe in some basic things we believe in. And I think it's important for us every once in a while to be like, we are partnering with people, and that's good, and we need to stay focused on, and every time something good happens with us, we need to realize that God has blessed us so that we can bless and be generous and sacrificial with others, not so that we can be smug, right? I thought Lloyd did a great job with that. And then last week, good Lord, did you hear Manohar? I was in my basement. I felt so humiliated listening to him talk about biking across India, leading people to Jesus with no money. Like, oh my gosh, we should have a congregational meeting this afternoon and vote him to be the senior pastor. I will vote against me and for him, like for two years at least, like until he goes back to India. He should be the senior pastor. Like, I crack jokes and he rides across India with no money leading thousand people to Jesus? For God's sake, like, what are we doing? Who are you listening to? Gosh. 
So I nominate that as, that's a, that's a, I motion that for our next congregational meeting. Like, we'll, we'll do something, but good heavens. I hope that, I hope that you felt that way, like, in the inspired kind of way. It was the, it was the inspiring kind of humiliation, you know? But, man, it's either that or we can't be friends anymore, him and I. So we're going to go with, you inspired me. (laughs) And should be the senior pastor of this church, objectively speaking. Okay, now for this passage. I went out west. Thank you for not burning my house down while I was gone. It was very nice. Okay. Um, <clears throat> have you ever had one of those conversations with somebody where, where you were like, you should have stood up for me, right? It's like your friend or your spouse or your, one of your kids or one of your parents. And like, you're upset because you like were saying something and somebody was contradicting you or they were criticizing you and they were there and they should have stood up for you. And you're like, you should have stood up for me. Right? When I was younger, there was this movie that came out called The Scent of a Woman. This is back when Al Pacino was kind of in his aged prime. And there's this, like, this, the plot is, like, there's this young kid who's at college, and it's, like, an Ivy League school, and he's from, like, a poor family. And he kind of gets in trouble for something stupid, and they're going to use it to expel him. And over the course of the movie, he gets to know this, like, lieutenant colonel who's, like, gruff and tough and, like— and he's like blind, and it's, you know, whatever. Anyway, it's an interesting film. Anyway, and so they get to the end, and there's this trial thingy, and it's a total hypocritical sham, and like the guy's about to pronounce judgment on this boy who's from this family, whatever, right? And he's like, do you have anything to say? And the kid's like, I don't know. And the guy's like, I got something to say, right? And so he stands up, and he's not even allowed to be in the room, really. And so the president, who's like this, like this weasel of a man, right? He like, bangs his little gavel. He's like, you're out of order, sir, right? He's, and he, like, takes his, like, blind sticks and, like, bangs them on. He's like, I'll give you out of order. If I was the man I was five years ago, I'd take a flamethrower to this place, right? And then he gives this, like, impassioned speech about on behalf of this young boy, and, like, the student body claps, and he's vindicated, and it's beautiful, and, like, every human being wants that guy walking around with him all the time. Like, being like, every time you get criticized, they'll be like, I'll give you out of order. If I was the one, like your boss criticizes your PTS report, you know, he's like, I'll give you out of order. If I was the man, you know, like, because that's, it's just what we're like, right? Human beings are, are we want, we want to be justified. We want people, we're self-righteous, and we want people to tell other people on our behalf that we're fantastic. We want people to tell us we're fantastic. And, and there's this great tweet um, that I saw about a month ago. This, this guy, Noah Smith, said, here's a hypothesis. A substantial part of what people call virtue signaling is actually self-righteousness, i.e. you're signaling your virtue to yourself, not just other people. Right? Like, you see people, like, they're, like, they're, like, they're tweeting out their fair trade coffee, you know, and it's kind of like, so you can all know that I'm righteous, but they're also sending out the tweet to themselves. Right? They're kind of like, look at my tweet of myself. I'm so righteous. You know, and there's a lot of truth to that. And it's not because those people who think this or that other thing are, um, are, are like, really dumb, self It's, they're humans, Right? God has given the human heart a true desire, which is to be a justified self. To know that you are secure in your existence, spiritually, and in all ways. And you want to know that, like, 
Nobody can just come out of nowhere and just arrest you and like drag you away to hell or jail or whatever. You want to know that you're secure in your own person, right? That's why we get so upset about the misuse of power with police and stuff like that or the judicial system or, or when people like, you know, work laws or voting or those kinds of things. Like we get upset about that stuff because we want to believe that justice will function somewhat, right? Because we want to believe we're safe. We want to believe that there hangs over us a banner that says, this person stands in justice. They are innocent. They cannot be accused and dragged away. And what we, and even deeper than anything legal is spiritual. We want to believe that if we stand before God or, or stand in the moral judgment of another person, we want to be able to know that a banner of innocence, of, of righteousness, is above our heads. And we want an advocate that is, that is able to pronounce that we are in good standing. And how dare you attack us, right? Now, why am I telling you this? Because one of the messages that Jesus is trying to tell us in very kind ways, but in ways that he will never back down on, is is that Jesus does not offer any way to self-justification. If you want Jesus to stand up for you, for you to be like you are, <laughs> for you to be however you want to be. And if, if you want to just, if you want to be God and you want Jesus to stand in and bang the gavel and say, you know, how dare you? That's not, that is not the service that Jesus provides. Okay, he's never going to do that. Jesus does not offer a way of self-justification. And yet we need to be justified. And, and that's because the justification that Jesus offers is that he gives righteousness. He does not verify righteousness, okay? Like he's not your—Jesus is never going to like validate your righteousness parking. Like that's never going to happen. The only way you will ever be validated by Jesus in terms of him declaring that you are just or right is if you receive his righteousness. And that is a, a, a gift. That is not something you're like, I'm good. And he's like, yes, no. It, you, you say, I need. And he says, okay. And he gives you righteousness. And then he puts his stamp of approval on his own righteousness in you. Does that make sense? And the reason I say this is because human beings are constantly, constantly, constantly wanting from God for him to verify their righteousness, either religiously or irreligiously, rather than receiving a righteousness from Christ. And we cannot—you cannot be Jesus' disciple. You cannot grow in grace. You cannot be a substantive believer. You cannot have the mind of Christ, live in self-sacrificial love, grow in virtuous freedom, or keep in step with the Spirit. You can't do any of those things reasonably or reliably until you become increasingly weaned off of your natural human addiction in the flesh to self-righteousness. And I wrote down a whole list of things that spiritually you can't ever be, and it's very long if you're given a self-righteousness. But here's the most important thing. Okay, the number one most important thing. You can't know God. You just can't know God. God, God cannot be known by the human soul given to self-righteousness because you can't, you can't see the beauty of God when you're still trying to sell him your beauty that isn't there. You can't open yourself wide enough to see the vista of his greatness if you're narrowing the world so that you look good in it. 
it just doesn't work. You can't, you can't do it, and so you can't know God. And so, yes, you can't be virtuous, and yes, you can't be a good person. Yes, all that's true. All the personal self-help benefits that would make your life better and make your eternity good, all those are true, and self-righteousness destroys all of them. But the most fundamental thing is God created you to know him and to be known by him. And self-righteousness is the divorce of that relationship. I said in the last service, and I should not have said this in the last service, but I said, selfishness makes you a bastard. And I mean that literally. Self-righteousness is only one of the only fundamental things that can form in your character that can delegitimize your childness in God. It is the only thing that can fundamentally separate you from the family of God, from belonging to him. It's the only thing that can make you fundamentally illegitimate. Because you can't receive anything that God gives because you still want yours to be stamped. Now, in this passage, I just want to look at four revelations that basically come out of justification. But first, a note on the Packers. So, this, I pro- anyway. Because some people will ask this, Nick, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament also, there are references to righteousness that are not the righteousness of Christ. They're referring to righteousness in us. Okay? And so however we interpret the Bible, we've got to make sense of that. We've got to make sense of that the Bible both says we have no righteousness, and then it acknowledges righteousness in us. How do we do that, and how do we not be self-righteous in that? And that's true. The Bible does do that. All through the Bible, it talks about us being righteous, and not as a reference to the gift of righteousness. It's, it's referring to virtue in godly people. Okay? And it's a little bit like this. When you believe in Christ, and you become one with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in, and you're justified by faith, you experience the miracle of regeneration of the heart, there's an, a realivening of your conscience, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, you will begin to walk intentionally like Jesus, and the Spirit will enable you, and you will do things that are morally beautiful, much more morally beautiful than you are doing, and this will happen increasingly, and that is real righteousness. And the, the question then becomes, in relationship to self-righteousness, who gets credit for that? And the answer is, we don't know. <laughs> so you better give the credit to God. Right? It's a little bit like in 1965, the Packers win the Super Bowl, right? And that guy, number 76, goes, I won the Super Bowl. Well, you were part of a group that won the Super Bowl. You, yes, you sort of won the Super Bowl. But like, what, you're like 152nd. Like, you, you have no, we have no, nobody can ever know how much you made the contribution. And so whenever, like, it happens, whenever, like, you're living in Christ and, like, something really beautiful happens, are you being righteous? Yes. You're winning, you're getting a win, okay? But you're part of a fundamental spiritual team. You're, like, indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and, like, you're part of a team, and you can't sort out credit. It's impossible to sort out credit. It's a team sport, okay? And so you and the Spirit indwelling you have done something that is, in some meaningful sense, righteous in its moral, ethical, and spiritual beauty. Great. You'll never be able to parse out what was what unless God literally exactly tells you and he doesn't do that. And so all you can do is rejoice. Like this, the great humiliation of it is that the only thing you can do is be happy, not self-righteous. You see, if you're converted, that's enough. If you love God 
and you want to know God and be known by him, and something righteous happens in your life, and you're like, that was a win, man. And what are you supposed to do? Because you got two options. You can be self-righteous about it, be like, I'm fantastic. Or you'd be like, this is so great. You see, if you realize that you're a team, and so you never know what you could possibly trade credit for, all you can do is be happy about it being there. You get to have joy, but you could never rightly take self-righteousness from it. If you understand that when Christ comes in, then all of the righteousness that comes from your life and real righteousness can come out of your life. It's just a team sport, and so you can't take credit for it. Okay, so four revelations about how Jesus confronts people who want to be self-justified. Now, the first question you could ask is, Nick, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan and Mary and Martha. What does this have to do with self-righteousness? Like, was your time with your in-laws that bad? That like you come home pregnant with this rant about self-righteousness, right? I hope not. Um, one of the first things that we can recognize from these two, these two narratives is that everyone wants to feel self-justified. Think about it. Um, you've got this teacher of the law, this man who's educated, who's franchised, who has power. People listen to him. He's got his PhD. You know, he's interesting, right? He's established, right? And then you've got this woman who's going about the basic work of getting food on the table. It's a pretty good span of humanity. Both of them have the same issue. Now you could be like, well, Nick, Nick, I don't—why? Still, you still lost me on why is this? Okay. So this week I was—I went into one of my daughter's rooms, and, and she was watching another YouTube video on, like, makeup tutorials. And I, like, I, I was just like, you know how as a parent, like, you get angry when your, your kids aren't really being bad, but it's just like, you've had enough? And you, you realize you're about to be irrationally angry with your child, right? And so, I, so I'm like getting ready to scream at her. Like, how could you be this vacuous? You're right? And I go, okay. So I said, sweetheart, I need you to do something today for your heart and for your soul that's not for your face, okay? Um, what are you going to do? And so I got the little like, why are you interrupting me, Dad? Teenager thing. And then, and then she said, she said, okay, I, I'll do something. And I said, if you can't think of anything, you can read Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan and Mary and Martha, and tell me what ought to be in my sermon. And so she said, okay, I'll do that. So she reads these two passages, and she says, Dad, I think you should talk about service in your sermon, because these two passages are about service, because like the Good Samaritan served this guy, and um, and Mary, like, sat at Jesus' feet serving him. And I said to her, you've completely missed the point. Right? And now, and then she kind of, like, was like, and, but, but, and this is how, this is how great, this is how, like, don't give up on your snotty teenagers. So, like, the next day, so, like, I wanted to, like, wring her neck. And then the next day, she brought it up. She said, Dad, what did I miss in that passage? I want to know. And I was like, oh. So, and, and here's, here's why that's important. Because she did what all of us do. She went to the Bible self-righteously, believing she already knew what it tell, it, it's going to tell you. And so we all have like seven or eight things we think Jesus are going to tell us, and one of them is serve. And so the minute we see anything service-related in a passage, we go, oh, I get it. I get it. Right? And we're like, I get the passage. We're supposed to serve. I understand Jesus. I know the answer. And now I've exhausted all the meaning of the passage. Right? And like, what that tends to do is lead you to be completely wrong. Like, you actually have to go to the Bible believing that you are, like, so dense, okay? And the truth is going to be right there on the page, and you're going to miss it. <laughs> and you may have read, like, 
honest, honest to goodness, like, how many people have heard more than 10 sermons on the parable of the Good Samaritan or Mary and Martha? Right? A little skeptical this morning about, like, what are you going to tell me out of this thing? Honest to God. You're going to—oh, you're going to tell me some, like, multi-ethnic thing, like the Samaritans were hated, blah, 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 like, I haven't heard that. What are you going to—what are you going to—bring it. What are you going to tell me? What are you going to—Mary, oh, Mary's busy. You shouldn't be busy. Or Martha's busy. You should be like Mary, and you should be like— you should take personal retreats and like listen at the feet of Jesus and like, I've heard that all before, right? It's not about that. It's not, it's not about that. Now, the point about multi-ethnicity, about the Samaritan, that's a true point. And if I was like doing a multi-ethnic thing, like I could preach a whole sermon on that from that passage, but that's not the point of the passage, okay? And, one, and listen, like, we sit around on our phones, like, typing little words because they cost nothing, and we're like, oh, I'm going to tweet this little thing. I'm going to snap whatever this. And because it's free. It's like this fleeting thing. It's like an excuse not to exist by creating a fake existence. You know, it's like, ah! Okay, these people who lived in these times, they had to pick cattails, dry them, weave them together, sharpen sticks, create ink from, like, octopus eyes or something, you know? Like, not really. That was just from plants, but I thought that would be more dramatic. But like, they, they had to like make ink out of like stuff that stains, you know, that lasts for thousands of years. And then they've got to like painstakingly write on this complete— I mean, have you ever—I mean, probably half of you have cussed because you tried to like write with a ballpoint pen on a little bit to like— I've had people come and complain to me about like, Nick, these connection cards and these ballpoint pens, they don't go together! That one doesn't write on the other one, right? And I'm like, Luke had to write on cattails, right? If you're upset about the finish on the card, there's some legitimacy to that, okay? It's, I'm just making a point, okay? Then the point is, is that if every word in the Bible is there for a reason. Every word. You don't read over one. Now, I'm, listen. I understand your skepticism about the early chapters of Second Chronicles and about, like, the number of silver bowls and stuff. Like, okay, I get that. I totally get that. Just go with me on this, though, okay? Like, I, I'm—we're probably wrong about that. Like, there's probably some really important stuff in there we don't get, okay? But listen, it doesn't—the the parable does not say this. Jesus was sitting around with some disciples, and he said, let me tell you a story. There was a man— in Jerusalem, and he was going down a road to Jericho. That's not what he says. That's not the story. The story is an expert in the law decided he wanted to test Jesus. That's really important. That's like not one word. That's a sentence, right? And he says to Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Right? Okay, now you may have heard Jesus has said before that the summary of the whole law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke, Jesus never says that. Okay, that's in Matthew. And in Mark, I think, it's not in Luke. This is the only time this is said in Luke, and it's not in the mouth of Jesus. So that means one of two things. Either one, Jesus has been saying it, and this guy has been listening to him, and he's gotten that. Or two, this guy reads the Bible properly. Okay, now you might think, well, Nick, that sounds like a perfectly good summary of the law, to love God and to love your neighbor. Okay, but if you actually read the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and you read through Genesis, and then you get into Exodus, and then there's the Ten Commandments, which sounds like a pretty good summary. And then you've got like 
you know, like fencing, fighting, true loves, and giants. And then you've got the sacrificial system, and there's references to red and green mold and what is to be done. And like, you go through all this stuff, and you're winding all around, and like, these verses are not in particularly prominent places. Like, one's in Exodus, the other's like dead in the middle of Leviticus, all around some really salacious sexual stuff that would get your attention. And like, this guy's able to be like, that verse and that verse. That's the summary. Because we read this and we're like, oh, another one of these religious teachers. They were all so hypocritical. No piety at all. They, they didn't really love Jesus. It was all religion to them. No, it wasn't. They felt just like you. Just like you. I know some stuff. I think I know these things. I love God. Like, I think I'm on the right track. Jesus, tell me I'm on the right track here now. Right? And then, right, he says to Jesus, okay, and then Luke tells us, and then he said, because he wanted to justify himself, because what did Jesus say right before that? He says, you're right in that summary. Do this and you will live. It's not enough to have the theological abstraction in your head. That doesn't mean anything. If you can recite to me that a good summary of God's teaching in the Old Testament is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that means nothing, except if you know it, then you could act on it. Right? Information is, hel is helpful to precede action, but it's the action that matters. Right? He says, so do it and you'll live. And so that's, that's a tall order, right? Do it? Well, he just said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a real problem I'll get to in a little while. And so he says, who's my neighbor? Because he wants to be justified. You see, Luke literally tells us he says it because he wants to justify himself. Because here's the thing. If you've ever read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you say, you've ever thought this. You know, the guy asks, who's his neighbor? And then Jesus tells this story, and that story doesn't really answer the question. You are a good Bible reader. That is correct. Jesus does not answer the question, okay? Because Jesus is a preacher, right? And when you're in, in a discipler, and when you're trying to disciple somebody, help them grow in their faith, you need to ask yourself this question every time you get asked a question. Do I give the philosophical answer, or do I give the psychological answer? Is it my job at this moment to inform this person, or to confront this person, or comfort this person, right? And what Luke tells us in explicit terms is that this guy has a bad attitude. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a contradiction to his bad attitude, which deals with his heart problem about self-justification and does not answer his theological question at all. It's partly because it can't be answered, which I'll get to in a little bit. But you can see that there's an issue and then Mary and Martha, I mean, think about this. So Jesus goes to this town. It says that Jesus goes to a town, and then Mar Martha invites Jesus into her home, which probably means Jesus and a bunch of disciples and so on, right? And so they come over to, to Martha's house, and Martha apparently invited them publicly. So other people in the town, Bethany's not very big, right, know that they're all going over to Martha's house. And oh, Martha Stewart, she has such nice, like, linens, you know? And so she comes in, and, you know, for all the corrections in the new NIV, man, they blew it on this one, I think. Um, and, here, and here's why. It says in verse 40, it says, But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Okay, now, now listen, I'm half Italian. 
we take hospitality pretty seriously. Like, there needs to be, like, eight times more food than anybody could possibly eat. Like, if you have somebody in your house, you're aiming at obesity, okay? Like, it, like, th- that's the goal, right? And so, when it says there's all these preparations that had to be made, like, what you're thinking is, she's making homemade pasta for 37 guys. Like, that's generally, it, it's the stuff that has to be done. The word had, the use of that word makes it sound morally necessary. That's not what the text says in Greek. It's just not what it says. It says, more li- this is a more literal translation. It says, Martha was distracted or drawn away with much serving. Is the, the, literally what it says. Martha was distracted or Martha was drawn away with much serving. The New American Standard and the English Standard Version both do a better job with that. Um, and then when she complains, she doesn't say, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Right? Which means the passage isn't about serving at all. It's like the anti-service passage. It's literally the opposite. But think about this. Martha, this woman who's working so hard and cares so much about being hospitable, what is she not being? This is participatory. Hospitable! (laughs) Right? Like, she's got Jesus at her house. He's teaching people. That's why Mary is sitting there. Like, he's still teaching at her house. And and Martha comes up to this guy who she's working so hard to treat like a celebrity, like an important person. And then she goes and treats him like some guy who's going to deal with her inter-family problems. And she's like, Jesus! Don't you care that my sister, I'm doing all this work. I'm doing all these things. I'm making falafel. I'm making bread. I'm making ice cream. And she's doing nothing. She's like just sitting there and like she, she's left me all alone to serve, to serve you. And you should tell her to help me. So like one, she blows up at him. And two, she tells him what to do. Three, she tells him what to do in a family argument that he's not a part of. Like, in what universe is that hospitality? Like, you invite somebody over to your house, you get in a family fight, and you turn to the person who's never been to your house before and be like, you sort this out. <laughs> but you see, you guys, listen. That's exactly what self-righteousness always does. It reverses reality. Self-righteousness is always reversing reality. And that's why it destroys everything spiritual, because essentially all that God is doing in Christ is reuniting us to reality, right? He wants us to enjoy himself, the ultimate reality, the ultimate of all things beautiful and great. Like, to, to, to find our true natures again, created in the image of God, being redeemed in Christ, like seeing the world as it really is. Why do we love other people? Because they bear the image of God and we're made to love each other. All those, that's all just reality that we can't see because of the flesh and because of our self-righteousness. And the, all that God is doing is reorienting us to reality because God is going to wipe away everything that isn't real. Right? And the majority of that is moral unreality. What everything means. Right? Because I can acknowledge there's another person there, but what I won't acknowledge is what it means that he's there. But to God, what is physically true and what is morally true are just as real. 
right? Okay, second. Self-righteousness or self-justification is deadly to virtuous faith and real righteousness. So I've said things like this before. You know, we all want a positive push in the right direction. But listen, man, it helps you run faster towards that if you're fleeing barbarians that are trying to scalp you. Okay? Um, human beings have a 10 times stronger reaction. This is physiologically, psychologists speaking. Have a 10 times stronger reaction negatively to things that make them feel endangered than they do to positive things. Because, like, the things that we think are going to destroy us or kill us or ruin our lives, like, that really gets our attention. That's why when somebody criticizes you, like a little criticism, but, it feels, it, but because it feels like it attacks your security, you can't take it. Because that, that, that feeling secure is so fundamental to you. It's so fundamental to human beings. And that's normal, right? But that's why sometimes negativity is so much more powerful. And that's why you, you and I need to use negativity rightly. Rightly. To motivate ourselves toward the good, but to keep our eyes forward on the good. Does that make sense? And so, um, what do I mean by that? Why is that important? There's two reasons why self-justification kills everything good spiritually. Um, one is just diagnostic, because it, if you are looking at the world in a self-righteous way, it's telling you what's evil is good and what's good is evil. It's telling you when you're at your worst, it'll tell you you're being fantastic. That's why you can have these explosive arguments with your spouse where both of you are 100% convinced that you're right. Because the minute self-righteousness rises up, it, it, is, it starts generating compelling reasons why you're right. And, and the, but here's the problem. That's happening for the other person, too. And, and the more you yell at each other, the more the mind naturally hones in on all the reasons why you're right and not why they're right. And so self-righteousness is just always going to naturally tell you lies. But, the, it, but I talk about that all the time because I talk about perceptional blindness spiritually all the time. One of the things we don't talk about all the time is this. Self-justification, the— the place of pride and vanity in us is trying to do two things. It's trying to, one, look good to the world so that we're safe. Right? Because the flesh says, if I have a good image, people will think a certain wellness of me, and I'll be safe. And secondly, I can do what I want to make myself happy. I can indulge. Right? So self-righteousness is like trying to have your cake and eat it too right? Real righteousness or humility is believing that you have to let go of the piece of wheat and plant it in the ground and let it die for it to grow a hundred times more. They're very different. Here's the problem. Love is literally the opposite, right? Love is almost, not almost always, but in many cases, whenever you're interacting with worldliness or the flesh or the devil, it's always going to make you look bad. If you decide you're going to be a person of love, that you're going to follow Jesus into a life of love, you are going to look bad a lot. A lot. Right? Think about this. In John 13, Jesus says, By this, the whole world will know that you're my disciples. If you, what? Love one another. Right? So like the ultimate proof in apologetic, the thing that should show the world the truth is the fact that we would love one another. Right? And then he says, and then another place he says this, the world has blank me and it will blank you for the student is above his teacher. Let's fill in those blanks. The world has hated me, comma, 
and it will hate you for the student isn't above his teacher. Do you see the idea there? Simultaneously, we're to display to the whole world what Jesus is really like and that we're really his disciples by loving one another. The context there is other believers, actually, right? But we're supposed to love the whole world, but the context there is other believers. And meanwhile, the world is going to hate you. That is, and that is this. And that makes perfect sense. And the reason that makes perfect sense is this. Because self-righteousness is a game that hides. Because it wants to keep vice so that it can indulge. And so self-righteousness sets up the whole world so that you can say anything to me but the one thing I need. Do you understand? And so, and so I've set up this elaborate game so I'll let you say all these things, but the one thing I need, the thing that I spiritually require, what is necessary for my restoration, my growth, my repentance and faith— I've set everything up so that the shield is in front of that thing, and you can't say the one thing I need. And but if you're going to love me, you have to say it. Right? Now, if you're committed to self-righteousness, and I'm committed to self-righteousness, we can make a trade. You don't say the one thing I need so I can be who I want to be and have a nice image, and I won't say the one thing you need so you can be who you want to be and have a nice image and do what you want. And we'll just live with that trade. That's called worldliness. We say each other are nice people. We let ourselves indulge as much as we want with a few guardrails on, I don't want you hurting me too much. But for the most part, I agree not to say what you need to hear, and you agree not to say what I need to hear. Love is literally exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. It's willing to be treated and hated and seen as evil while being good, and to give people what they really require which in many cases is the, the thing they most don't want from you. Okay, that is as fundamental a truth as I know in the Bible. And that means you—and listen, you can't PR fix that. Listen, I, I know so many Christians who live in the worldly world, and they want to be Christians in a way in which other people like them. Because people aren't going to come to Jesus if everybody hates us, right? We can't be like that, and so we've got to be winsome, and we've got to be— Stinking careful how you're winsome. Yes, don't be like hypocritically religious and don't be holier than thou and don't be self-righteous. Yes, absolutely. 100%. But listen, love is going to make you hated and there's no way around that. There's no like slick, cool way to be Christian so that like we can be godly and people are going to like us. That's never going to happen. Ever. If we are doing what we must do in any city or among ourselves, some people will be won over by love, and a lot of people will not like us. And there's no way around that. There's no way to fix that. If you have to be liked, you cannot be a Christian. You can't. Because everybody's constantly selling you the, you can't tell me this thing, and if you do, I'm going to hate you. And then you have to tell the truth, and you have to love them, and you need to go for what they really need, and that doesn't go, man. But nobody can live, right? The guy asked Jesus, what do I need to do to experience eternal life? Well, you've got to love. <laughs> you've got to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And what do you want? Well, you want you want eternal life. You want what's best for you. And what's best for you is you need to hear what you need to hear. And you can't 
give people whatever they want if they're asking out of self-righteousness and self-protection. That's not love, but you have to love God, and you have to love them. You don't have an option of being liked. But you, but you get to love. And so we have to recognize how deadly self-righteousness and self-justification is and how absolutely unwilling Jesus is to play along with it and how it's an everyday struggle. I said in the last service, um, this may be another thing I might not should have said in the last service, but I said, I said, listen, one of the only ways that I know of morally or functionally that you should be like our president is that self-righteousness wants to constantly be your PR manager and say that you're a good person to the world. And you need to say you're fired to that thing every single day. You just need to be like, you're, fi you're fired. I live by conscience and by love. And you could, the thing is, is that when, that, when the, the PR manager of self-righteousness comes in, he wants to change what you do. He wants to say, no, look, look, if we sell it this way, let's sell it this way. If you say it that way, if we do this here, if we change that, if you cut your hair like this, if we do the thing here and we do the that, then people will like you. It'll, it'll work. And, it, and you're basically faithful to the gospel. It's basically faithful to the gospel. But like, people will like you. And, and the response to that is not like, oh, you're brilliant. The response to that is, you are fired. Somebody take away his key card. You're fired. Like, you, you get secret service to dress, and it happens every day, because, like, you can take away self-righteousness' key card. You can, like, take away his clothes. Like, he'll come running across the White House lawn and jump through a window. Like, self-righteousness will come back in 10 minutes, and you have to fire it every second because he wants to be your PR manager, and if you let him, he will destroy love. Every time. Okay, we should move on. Hope that was helpful. All right, where are we going? Jesus said a lot of these things. Okay, three. You will never be able to outreason your self-justification and self-righteousness. You have to say that it's wrong first, fire it and banish it, and then find, understand, find spiritual reasons for what you need to know. Because... Spiritual self-justification always has compelling reasons that are in fact false, but that are perfectly compelling. That's why you can be screaming at your spouse and know absolutely that you're right, and you can't believe how obtuse they are, and be wrong. And usually you're both wrong. Um, think about it this way for a second. The, the expert in the law asks actually a really, really good question. Okay, if he didn't have a bad attitude, I think Jesus would have answered the question differently. I think if he was sitting around and that guy was like, okay, Jesus, I'm struggling with this idea and I feel, I feel torn about it. Could you, could you answer this question or help me think about it better? I think Jesus would have given a completely different answer. Okay, because think of, the, the question is a good question, right? So th the summary of the law— which you, you need to believe in and follow to have eternal life is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what faith looks like. That's the faith that saves. Okay, great. Okay, did you hear the last phrase? The as phrase? Did you pay attention to the as phrase? 
as yourself. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Look, how are you supposed to love anybody as yourself? I spend like 80% of my day loving myself. I don't have time to love anybody else like myself. Like that's, that's a lot of work. I mean, that's like qualitatively from like 1 to 100%. Loving your neighbor as yourself? It's like 100%. That's completely unreasonable, right? And so if, if you're going to do something with 100% quality, what are you going to do in terms of quantity? Like less, right? So if you're going to do 100% quality, you can only maybe like maybe two people, right? And so what do we do? Should we, should we pre-designate those? Should we have fewer children? Like what are we supposed to do, Jesus? Like that's a really good question. Because if it's like 100%, 100%, conceive of that, much less do it. Right? Now, here's the problem. The problem is, is that, that that question doesn't have an answer. Okay? Now, on one level, I think the subsidiary answer is pretty good. It, it, it comes from, like, a bunch of modern moral writers, which is, like, the, the closest people to you, you have the most immediate and largest responsibility for, and then it, it tapers down as things go out. Right? I don't have time to get into that now. Subsidiary. Principle subsidiary, whatever. You can Google it if you want generally helpful. But the problem with that is, is that in the Torah, the real explanation of of who's your neighbor and how to love them is the Torah itself, the book that they're summarizing. I mean, Jesus could say, well, just reverse summarize, right? Like, loving your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? It's everybody that the Torah says you bump into in all the ways the Torah, the law talks about it, right? So, like, you don't have sex with your aunt. That's one way you love your neighbor. And if you're walking along and somebody's mule has fallen over and you, he can't get him up, you help him get the mule up. Like, the problem is, is there's no answer because you improvisate, you, you, you engage in improvisation through your life. So like, it's always changing who your neighbor is and how much you should give to each person. Every second, it's different. So when you come into church, as you walk through the halls, loving your neighbor as yourself is literally changing every single minute. Because you're interacting with a different set of people in different ways, with different opportunities, with different levels of interaction, relative to their opportunities, and all of that. And so every second, it's different. You have to know in your guts what to do. You can't, ab- you can't get it from an abstraction. But it's worse than that. Because when you summarize what you have to do to an abstraction, oftentimes if self-righteousness gets a hold of that abstraction, it screws your heart up worse. Okay, so think about it this way for a second. It's helpful to know that if we summarize the whole faith that God gives, it can be summarized to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's helpful, right? It's helpful. Now here's the problem with that, though. It's an abstraction. There's no people in that. It's an idea. And you see, that idea, if self-righteousness gets a hold of it, it goes, oh, I can do a lot of stuff with this idea. One, it doesn't say specifically what loving God is, so anything can be loving God. Okay, so let's, right? And then it'll be like, so, and so then the next question the flesh is going to ask is, oh, I have to love my neighbor as myself. Oh, the definition of the word here we're going to screw with is neighbor. Because the more people we can disqualify from counting as neighbor, the easier that is. Right? And so, what happens is self-righteousness, or in this case, what this would be spiritually biblically would be the flesh, right? It's all that's driven against God inside of us, takes this tr- fundamentally, absolutely true abstraction, and then takes it into the human heart and begins to use the human heart that's already sinful to say, 
you're doing this. That person's just not your neighbor. You're doing this. You're doing all these things. These people just aren't your neighbor. That's not really loving God. This isn't— And what it can actually do is actually foul up your heart so that nothing good is happening. What Jesus is saying implicitly in this parable, he's saying, listen, if you understand what it means to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, what will happen is that abstraction has to come into your consciousness and interact with your conscience in such a way as that your twisted heart begins to get restored in such a way so that your faculties of feeling begin to function properly again, okay? So that you, your actual, you, you emotionally know the answer because love is changing so fast. Who you're supposed to love and how much is changing so fast. Your knowledge of who you're supposed to be loving and how has to be almost instinctual because it literally is happening instantaneously. And the, so the only way that can work is if through conscience, your emotional life gets reordered so you can feel your way through it. Because think about this. What, what happens to the Samaritan? Right? He's walking by the person, and what does Jesus say happens to him? He doesn't say. See, he could have told the story this way. He could have said, so the Samaritan was walking by, and the Samaritan, they're also Jewish people, and he had been reading the Bible, and he was like, oh, I remember the verse in Leviticus 19, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. So he got down off of his donkey, got wine and oil, tended to the man's wounds, took him to— He could have told it that way. He applied the Bible. But that's actually not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is, is that he saw the man, and he had an emotional reaction. A emotional, yet still morally cognitive reaction. His heart was filled with pity. That's what it says. It says he was filled with pity. And so he—that led him to act. And so he took care of the man, right? And he gets to the end, and he asks the guy, he says, which of these three was a neighbor to the man? And the guy, he's moved a little bit, but he still answers with an abstraction, right? He says, the guy who had mercy on him, right? The action. He doesn't reference the feeling, and Jesus says, go, you go and do that too. But you see, the idea here is, is that in order for us to love well, you have to feel well. In order for you to feel rightly so that you can love as all your neighbors are changing every minute. The only way you can order through that is if you have a faculty that's functioning really fast. Your spiritual processor has to be kicking. And the only way that can happen is that if through conscience, the abstractions of true theology have changed your heart in piety. And that was that guy's problem. Jesus read all over him that the abstraction was serving his self-righteousness. It wasn't changing his conscientious heart and changing his emotions so that he would have pity and compassion and all those things flowing out of him whenever they were necessary. It's a huge liability for people who have thinking occupations or, or are analytical by nature. The problem with, with people who feel well is they never do the thinking enough to get their heart oriented, and so they have all the wrong feelings and follow them. Yet we all have to do both, and that's why we have each other. Let me end with one thing, because concision has not been successful. So one of the ways to think about this that I find fairly helpful, and if you can get this idea, I think it'll be really helpful. Okay, this is the last slide. We're going to end with this, and maybe we'll sing since it's the second service. Okay, um, there's a lot of people who think that Christianity is, has a huge problem in how it talks about righteousness. Because for two reasons, they'll, they'll say, okay, you believe that, that we're unrighteous and Jesus in his righteousness dies for us and gives us his righteousness. 
Okay, that's, that can't work for two reasons. The first reason they say is because that's not how justice works. If this person kills somebody and then you do, the, you, you do a capital sentence on this person, that doesn't make this person just. Okay? Now there's problems. That sounds good, but there's problems with that argument. The Bible says that God sees moral um, failure as debt. That's the metaphor he uses. In, God uses an economic metaphor. So the things that we do wrong function like a debt. And, and obviously once you use that metaphor, then it's obvious. Well, debts can be paid. Right? And the second is the idea of union. When you come into union with Christ, you're no longer talking—you no longer have two hands. These two are one. So if you really believe what the Bible teaches about the union of you with Christ, you cannot be separated legally because you've come together spiritually. And so all of his righteousness is yours and all of your unrighteousness is his. And he has justified this being in himself which now includes you, and you're justified in the team sport. So that objection is wrong, but you can see why people would think that. The second one is in some ways more political or more philosophical or psychological. It's to say this. If you tell wicked people that they can just receive a righteousness from the outside, they're just going to be terrible human beings. (laughs) They're just going to do whatever they want. And the answer is that's absolutely true if they believe the gospel self-righteously, i.e. they don't believe it. You see, if somebody says, oh, Jesus has done that stuff for me, and I'm, I'm good now, I'm righteous in him, and like that's all it ever does to you, all you were looking for was somebody to stamp and validate you, and you're not, you don't care about anything. And that's not what the gospel is. The gospel cuts our hearts to repentance. We see not just the moral problem, we see the ugliness and the foolishness and the stupidity and the pain we cause others and the fundamental unreality of all the sin that happens in our lives, and it looks— incomprehensibly disgusting to us. And then we see coming into that the beauty of Christ, his righteousness and his love and his beauty and his graciousness, his compassion, his pity, his desire for people, his, his outstretching generosity, like everything good and beautiful in Christ. And that enters in and we're like, I don't want anything to do with that ever again. And I want everything to do with this. And so the gift of righteousness shows us the beauty of righteousness. And when a human heart is transformed and spirit-empowered to comprehend something of the beauty of righteousness, it will always engage in the pursuit of righteousness. And in the pursuit of righteousness, God in that pursuit will give real righteousness in their union with Christ into every human life. And you'll start to see real righteousness coming out of your life in the team sport of walking with the Spirit in union with Christ. And you'll see the beauty of that, and you'll see the ugliness of that which isn't it. And it will— reawaken you to another level of the beauty of righteousness. It'll make you want to pursue righteousness more, and God will give you more of it. And if you try to be righteous on your own, you—we are human beings. We are the sorts of creatures where self-righteousness will always take a hold of that as a media proposition. And the more we try to be righteous and just to be, you know, be good people and do our stuff, and self-righteousness will always come in and take control of that. And self-righteousness will lead us to go seek self-justification. We've got to have the media right. And that self-justification will start believing our own bad self-righteous press and will become more self-involved, which will lead to more self-righteousness and more self-justification and more self-involvement. And we will, we will slide down the spiraling vortex of damnation, becoming less human every moment and more a trial to everyone else and more an affront to the glory of God. Jesus stands ready not to validate your righteousness, 
Jesus stands ready to give you his righteousness freely, completely, to be one with you by faith and faith alone. You trust in him and you believe in him and he will give you his righteousness. He will bring about in you the miracle of regeneration so that you have a living spiritual heart again, an awakenedness of conscience. He will come to you in the person and power of the Holy Spirit and he will begin to build in you what we call sanctification, which is a real change to actual righteousness, which looks something like loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And then you will learn how to improvisationally move your way through the world, loving the people you should love and telling the truths that you should teach and sacrificing in the, sacrificing in the way you must. And you will do it not in the twisted, dried out spiciness of self-righteousness, but in a richer, deeper joy that you simply get to participate with the beauty of the Spirit of God in loving God and loving others. Conclusion, believe in Jesus, not your self-righteousness. Do it now, at this minute. Do it 10 minutes from now. Keep firing your self-righteousness. Keep turning to Jesus. Seek humility. Seek his righteousness, and you will have your own. Never fully your own but really your own. Let's pray. Father, um, I wish I could have said this clearer and shorter, but I absolutely believe, according to the scriptures, that life and death stands before us in these passages. I pray that you'd free us, you'd help us, you'd teach us. We would see what we need to see. And I pray that as we turn to you, that you'd fill our hearts with the right feelings like you speak about in the parable of the Good Samaritan and that you take away all of our anxieties and worrying about many things that aren't needed. Help us to see that only one thing is needed, that we should listen to you and believe you, know you and be shaped by you. We pray that you'd come in and help us eliminate even the last bits of our resistance so we can give ourselves fully to you and therefore fully to love. In Jesus' name.